Hello and welcome to People in the Know. I'm Ken Root. I'm retired from a long career in agricultural news broadcasting, but I'm still interested in the land, the people, and our continuing intrusion into the natural environment. Most people want to know your opinion and then decide whether they like you or not based on that. Well, I have hope more than opinion. There are many things I don't know, but I believe our cumulative knowledge can point the way to a bright future for our grandchildren. So I'm taking this opportunity to talk to people in the know about a wide variety of subjects. This program is sponsored by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. Hello everyone, this is Ken Root. This week I want to talk to a gentleman who's a fisheries management biologist with Iowa DNR who I visited with throughout last year's season and, in my view, has a tremendous grasp of our rivers and streams and lakes and ponds across the state of Iowa because he's interested in the health and vitality of the ecosystem. Uh, And fish, of course, are a major part of it for a lot of people who want to fish in any kind of season of the year, but others who really want to know that we have diversity. So, Chad Dolan. Thank you very Hello. much for talking with me. Uh, you live in the uh, southeast part of the state. You're near Lake Darling, or maybe your office is on that Lake Darling, which sets way southeast. Uh, you're not mm-hmm. much of a drive from Mount Pleasant or Burlington or Fort Madison. Kind of a right. tropical area, huh? Yeah, the, the banana belt, so to speak, of Iowa. So. <laughs> in living there... Uh, and you're not that far from the Mississippi either, you're in a pretty good place that has quite a few different uh, types of ecosystems, I would think. Um, could you run me through, first of all, the question, how do you think that we're doing in Iowa right now as far as uh, keeping diversity in our streams and uh, all other water bodies and making it to where that it's a a good place for those who want to enjoy fishing or other aspects? Sure. Um, We are, uh, I would say, in a fantastic place. Um, You know, just take a look at 50 years ago and look how far we would have come. And and that really stems from uh, learning about the importance of clean water and what really uh, negatively affects our water bodies, you know. numerous things everything that humans do for that matter you know and it could be uh, urban construction it could be agriculture I mean all those activities on the landscape you know maybe we're just clearing an area to build a new house all of that has impacts you know and that's something that was not well understood in the past um, that we've gradually learned to understand a lot better over many many years and has brought us to the point of of doing things on the landscape um, in terms of improvements to help negate, you know, some of the bad things that we've done in order to uh, improve water and, and essentially have water bodies that are taking on less sediment, excuse me, <clears throat> sediment and nutrients um, that are neg- negatively affecting water quality and cause water clarity issues uh, and things that ultimately 
negatively affect fish health. We've had a controversy going on for all of my adult professional life that goes back to the early 70s of uh, farming and uh, water supplies not being on the same page that uh, we had just what you're talking about Mm -hmm. um, off run from the uh, farms that went into the rivers, which then are utilized by the cities. Uh, the city of Des Moines even sued some watersheds in northern Iowa for the amount of sediment and uh-huh. nutrients and primarily nitrates that were coming down. Do you, and please be unbiased with this, do you believe that we, as farming people in Iowa, are seeing that we can farm and not have as much impact on the water supplies as we used to have? Absolutely, you know, and I I just feel like, you know, as we've moved through time, uh, you know, the farming community has realized that that they can do things that ultimately, um, you know, help them farm better, but also, you know, reduce the impacts of sediment and nutrient input to water bodies, and that these two, you know, scenarios can coexist quite well together, and that may be through the way that you know farming is done it could be through the implementation of of features that we often call best management practices uh within the watershed or on the farm that ultimately slow water down they slow that transport of water down they let sediment and nutrients settle out and a lot of these best management practices are trapped so to speak you know keep that bad stuff um that would be bad in a water body, but good on the landscape, keep it on the landscape. So that soil, that topsoil remains, you know, in the, in the field and doesn't make its way to a water body and deposit. And then we don't lose, you know, surface area uh, or acreage of lakes. And we don't have poor water clarity and have turbid water that negatively affects fish growth. So, yes, I do feel that, you know, over time, um, there really has been, uh, you know, a lot of focus and people are recognizing that, yes, these these two, uh, you know, entities can coexist. And really, you know, that results in, in better wildlife and fisheries uh, in the end. Let me take it from a little different direction, and that is urban expansion. People pouring concrete, people yeah. building buildings, people making it to where that when water falls, <coughs> excuse me a second, mm-hmm. they make it where when water falls, it really uh, doesn't have any way to go into the ground in a normal manner. It runs off. And yeah. a few years ago, I was up in uh, northeast Iowa where the, the town was trying to put in a what they call a pervious paving system. meaning that water would actually run through the Mm -hmm. paving that they were putting on their roads. And their argument was that's the way it naturally went, and we didn't have a huge amount of hot water runoff going into our streams Mm -hmm. because that supposedly is what's more damaging to trout than anything else. How How do you react to that scenario? Yeah, and that's a great example that you've given of a best management practices where, you know, you have these surfaces now that are permeable because think about it, you know, like solid concrete, that water is just going to sheet or run right over top of it if that highway or road happens to be next to a stream 
all that water, you know, that comes from whatever it may be, rainfall, you know, any number of sources. It could be people washing cars. It's got to run somewhere, right? And, uh, you know, so these permeable surfaces allow that stuff to be infiltrated into the ground. And that's, in essence, slowing down the transport of water. Yes, it can still move through the soil, but at a much slower rate. And obviously, depending on soil types, et cetera, um, that can filter out a lot of that stuff that we don't want reaching our water bodies. So, yes, in terms of urban expansion, just like we talked about agriculture, people are seeing as we expand our urban areas that we've got to do better. Um, we just can't, you know, pour concrete everywhere that you look. Um, yes, we have to build infrastructure, but we can build it better to allow uh, for the infiltration of water and filtering of things that we don't want making it to our recreational water body. You know, I recall doing some stories on the town I was referring to. It's West Union up in Fayette mm -hmm. County. Sure. And um, they got a, um, like a 12, it cost them about $12 million supposedly to do all of their Main Street area, uh, mm -hmm. several city blocks. But they got a lot of grants and uh, some studies that were done because it was uh, experimental. Um, apparently, they went through one entire set of city council members that, uh, you know, it was torn up for so long that uh, the city council members got uh, replaced by other people. Right. But then they, uh, they went through one contractor who said, I just cannot do this. And then mm -hmm. they got a second contractor in who did it. And it works, and it's there. Right. But right. I know it costs a lot of money, and I don't know how fast that type of uh, expenditure and uh, type of paving will expand into other places. Sure, yeah, and I, I think you brought up a good point. A lot of these sort of projects um, are very expensive. Um, you know, uh, you might have heard of the, the lake restoration program uh, that the mm -hmm. DNR has. Um, and, you know, they're funding a lot of, you know, in-lake as well as watershed work, you know, throughout the state. And there are many different, like, federal, state, even, you know, uh, local programs that, that can help fund these things. But, you know, ultimately, I've I've been involved in, in watershed and lake restorations that, you know, total $15 million or more. And they're done over years and years and years. Lake Darling being a great example of one of those where, there was a you know watershed work that was being done for a decade before uh, any equipment was really brought in lake uh, to do any work within the lake itself and the idea was that we must control the watershed and what is coming in and moving across the landscape and coming into the lake before we can actually fix or you know improve the lake itself because if you don't improve the watershed and you improve the lake, that might be just a short-term thing because, you know, all the stuff that you don't want is still moving rapidly through the watershed if nothing changes, you know. But but these projects I have seen, everyone that I have been involved in, uh, they take years and years, and, and honestly, they probably take longer than you anticipate. Um, there's always delays. A lot of those are related to the weather. You can't control what's going to happen outside. Um, uh, if if you get lucky, you have, you know, very suitable weather and a long construction window, window, but often in Iowa, 
you don't have that, you know. I mean, it can go from sunny to rainy and snow uh, very quickly, you know. So, but um, the thing that I would emphasize, you know, a lot of people kind of look short term and how is this going to impact my life short term or our revenue if you're talking about a park short term. And that's what we've got to remember that those are short term impacts, but we're looking at the bigger picture. So we're making improvements that, you know, in, in essence can last 50 or even 100 years, you know. Um, and so what we suffer short term is going to be short term, and then we're going to benefit for a long time for multiple generations mm-hmm. as the result of work that we did. So a lot of people do have to patch, you know, funding sources together. It may, you know, the money may not all come from one entity, um, it may take a lot of time. It may involve a lot of patience, um, but certainly, um, you know, if, if we stay persistent and we do those things, then ultimately we see the benefit, you know, to our natural aquatic systems for sure. My guest is Chad Dolan. He is with the Iowa DNR based in the far southeast Iowa. He's a fisheries management biologist, and uh, we got on water quality here and i recall in my uh, early days in iowa i did quite a bit of work with the people that are um, a big part of rathbun lake and rathbun sets in an area that's kind of rough country uh it's east and a little south of des moines it's a big lake i think chad it may be the biggest lake in iowa in total size but it is very large yep it is one that uh, they pull the water from it for rural water. And um, one of the people working there said, you know, one of the successes we've had of getting the people that had cattle that are upstream and drain into Lake Rathburn to move their cattle to where that they do not get into the streams is that they need rural water and we sell it to them. And they understand that they're drinking the water that is running through their farm, in effect, and picking up their manure, et cetera, and then going sure. into the lake. Yeah. And he said, that's amazing how much that it, they recognize that what they're doing impacts them as well, and yeah. uh, the lake has had some good success with that. Absolutely, and that's sometimes what it takes is just education. It's not it's not intuitive to most people, um, and in fact, it wasn't intuitive to scientists for years and years and years how what a watershed even was or how it functioned. You know, that's that's relatively new in the whole scheme of things. You know, so in that essence, you know, as, as scientists learn and understood better, it's really our responsibility to go out and educate folks and help them understand and and the point is that when people start to understand and start to recognize that things that they are doing are having an impact and you know things that they do on their own farm can turn around and impact them in the long run then they're they're typically always on board to uh, help do what's right you know to improve the landscape to improve aquatic systems and ultimately natural resources in general and that's what it takes. Let me throw something else at you. There's a lot of people that love to have their time on the water. They either buy close to it or they fish, swim, etc. And in the mm-hmm. summer, we get a huge amount of algae on many of our lakes. Is that a sign of poor water quality or is that shallow water? What is the reason and is there any cure? 
Yes, and it, it's it's a symptom of all the things that you mentioned. Um, you know, every case is a little bit different, but oftentimes, um, you know, if even if you have just very good water quality, that usually means excellent water clarity. So light is trans uh, being transported through the water column or penetrates through the water column very effectively to deep depths. And when that happens, I mean that whole zone that that light is penetrating um, can support plant life. And so um, then in a combination with high nutrients, um, that plant life is going to take advantage of those nutrients and they need that light to grow. And so you can develop a, a fairly significant biomass, whether it be algae or submersive rooted aquatic plants, etc. Now, shallow water can also uh, have an impact on that because you know, light penetration is going to be excellent in shallow water. It may penetrate all the way to the bottom sediments. It's going to warm those sediments. That's going to be very conducive to algae and plant growth. You know, so all of those things like working in combination can can lead to that. Now, during dry years, you know, when, when some of our lakes and ponds lose a little water to evaporation, we're not getting a lot of rainfall that can concentrate things like nutrients and make it more readily available to plant life and that's often times when when we suffer drought conditions you may see ponds uh, and lakes uh, with with more algal problems or more plant growth and that's simply because those nutrients are more concentrated and the fact that you know algae is like you know kind of hot warm, humid weather. I mean, that's their uh, the conditions that they really prefer, and so you'll see those things growing pretty significantly then. And then, of course, you know, in our interior rivers and even our big rivers, they suffer water loss. Um, if there are shallower rivers, like some of our interiors, it can actually pool up, and that water can become very warm. That's conducive, you know, to plant growth, but also can be great conditions, I should say, that may not be conducive necessarily to fish survival in some cases. I recall talking with a limnologist, I believe, if you know that degree. I guess that's basically mm-hmm. you're a, a freshwater a water study. Yep. And he was in Alaska working there during the time that they put the pipeline in. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the comments that he made that stuck with me was that he said we would have a little body of water that basically had no algae in it. But he mm-hmm. said only a small amount of nutrient can cause a huge algal bloom. Sure. Because it just takes so little. And I, I didn't realize that, you know, if you kept it totally in stasis, so to speak, nothing would happen. Right. But if you get a slightest uh, murmur in that whole thing, it, it blows up on you. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that, uh, you know, I'm just thinking in terms of Alaska. I don't know specifically what water bodies he's talking about, but I'm imagining in my mind very pristine water bodies, whether it be a small pond with very excellent water clarity. Now we cause disturbance to the landscape. Um, You know, sediment and nutrients can be transported uh, through surface runoff very quickly, you know, given an abundant rainfall they make their way to that very clear pond. So now, you know, we have lots of nutrients. Um, ideally, you know, the pond was very clear. 
Um, we get good light penetration. All of a sudden, we have a source of nutrients for plant life to really take advantage of. And then all of a sudden, you get an algal bloom as a result of that, you know. And, and usually, um, you know, certainly in a state like, like Iowa, for instance, we're just a very nutrient-rich landscape. So it's something that we that we've always had. Um, we're one of the most fertile states, uh, you know, in the United States, if, if not the most fertile state for that matter. Uh, yet, you know, because agricultural production is so high and we do such a good job at, at producing crops, we do add, you know, more nutrients to the landscape in the form of fertilizers, um, sometimes in excess of really what we need. And that can also make its way to water bodies and then lead to the algal problems that you mentioned. So yes, very you know, just a slight disturbance, you know, can can cause significant problems. And then in some areas of the United States, obviously there has been a, a huge disturbance to the landscape. Iowa being one of those places, you know, historically it would have been um, colonized uh, by prairie, as far as the eye can see. And prairie has very deep root systems. Um, obviously, there's a lot of above ground growth as well that can slow the transport of water, but that dense root system is also, and deep root system for that matter, is going to uptake those nutrients and essentially tie them up and prevent them from really reaching water bodies because it's all going into plant growth. You know, so all these sort of things have changed. You know, Alaska, as you mentioned, one of the last frontiers for that matter, but but certainly not immune to the same sort of um, disturbances that have happened elsewhere throughout the world. Well, we, uh, as a colonizing people who moved into this area in the second half of the 19th century, I guess Iowa started in 1846 and People started moving in here um, by the thousands after that, and most everybody moved into all of these states, and I'm talking from the Dakotas down to Kansas and across, because they were farmers. Sure. And, of course, the plow was what they used, and yep. the plow, uh, as you said, disturbed the soil and changed all of it from being that terminal prairie to being um, farmland today. So it's been totally disrupted. I mean, at one time, Illinois was known as the prairie state. And I think uh, studies show there's not over 100 acres of Illinois that was left that was unplowed. Sure. But there's an area in Kansas, and it extends down in Oklahoma, that is known as the Flint Hills in Kansas and the Osage in Oklahoma that is still in native grass. And it's absolutely a gorgeous place to drive through. Some of my friends, when they take the Kansas Turnpike, they say it's 80 miles of boredom, but I find it to be a place that is almost heaven on earth. Sure. But I asked people when I moved to Kansas, why didn't you plow it? And they said, you can't plow it. The rocks go all the way to the surface, but they're broken limestone, so mm -hmm. it'll grow the grass, but it won't allow people to plow it and be able plow to make it, yes. a crop on it. And I thought, Chad, that's an excellent example of, of how, I don't want to call it destructive, but how intrusive that we were. We plowed every acre we could because that's right. the way it was when we settled this land. Sure, yeah. And I mean, just thinking back, I mean, people were, were trying to make a go for themselves and really, 
you know, just support their families. And I mean, ultimately it was about supporting the human race and, and we are, uh, in the whole scheme of things, animals too, you know, and so we are trying to, to benefit ourselves and, and persist just like everything else, you know, and, and that was, that was how we did it. And, you know, I mean, it just took years of education and, and learning and, and really, I mean, uh, adapting, you know, as we were out there on the landscape to realize that, okay, this is how we did it, but we can do it better. Uh, and it's about evolving and adapting and, and doing things better and, and learning that we can we can persist and we can be successful doing things differently than they were historically. I think my father summed it up as well as anyone. He was born in 1907 in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, he went through the Dust Bowl as a sharecropper. Mm-hmm. And uh, then moved into the era of uh, he lived till 2000, and into the era of soil conservation, etc. And he said, "Poor folks have poor ways, and mm-hmm. you know they had no money, they had uh, uh, very little except their own labor, and that's what they did at the time, and that's what it resulted in was especially right. in the plains, the dust bowl, the washed away land." Iowa was fortunate in the quality of land it has, that it simply does not erode as rapidly as the silt of the and the sand of the southern areas, and I think that was a saver for Iowa. We've still had a lot of erosion in this state, but I do think that we've kept most of our soil in place. Well, yes, um, we have, um, and and part of that, as you mentioned, was just uh, the quality of land and, and, and you know our topography, things like that. But then, then also because we were highly agricultural, you know, um, as we developed federal programs through the Natural Resources Conservation Service, the focus has always been, you know, having agriculture on, and natural resources work together in concert, and then finding ways. Um, you know, to improve our practices on the landscape. So I think that was very evident very early on and has persisted through time and growing more important, uh, you know, every year for that matter to bring us to where we are today, you know, and to the point that uh, we're realizing that impacts on the landscape really affects fish growth in in our our impoundments and in our natural lakes and in our rivers and streams um and 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 we're seeing the fruits of our labor you know uh, you can go to lakes that historically were always very turbid uh, they had poor water clarity um, they took on a lot of sediment they lost a lot of surface area to sedimentation that have been restored after work was done in the watershed and we have better fisheries and we see more wildlife utilizing these places than we ever have, at least, you know, uh, for current generations that didn't know what it looked like before, you know, and so we're seeing these positive things happening as a result of this work. And again, that's, that's brought us to where we are currently today. And will things continue to get better? I think that they will. Every day we're discovering new ways and, and new techniques to help improve what's happening on the land. People are becoming more educated and really uh, just grabbing a hold of this stuff, taking some ownership in their land, pride in their, 
in their land and, 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 you know, pride in showing others, this is what I do to really help, um, you know, our natural aquatic systems in Iowa. And it all goes back to that landscape and, and how people are treating that land. Chad, in a moment, I want to ask you about the current conditions in our rivers and streams. After mm-hmm. this drought year we had, we had a small amount of rainfall uh, through many months, and uh, I'll uh, do so right after this. Now let's take a moment to speak with Taylor Parker, president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. They have offices across the state. Taylor, are there medications that may have an adverse impact on our hearing? Great question, and yes, there are. There are over 200 prescribed or over-the-counter medications that can attribute to hearing loss. And, you know, when you're looking, when we're talking about, you know, medications, the average person over the age of seven, or over the age of 55, excuse me, 72% of people over the age of uh, 55 take at least one drug. And two-thirds of all drug reaction, adverse drug reactions, occur over the age of 60. So you're talking almost three quarters of the you know population over 55 take at least one drug or one medication. You know, we're talking simple drugs from an aspirin regimen. An aspirin regimen, and we're not talking baby aspirin, we're talking regular size aspirin. If you take an aspirin regimen um, five days a week or more, you have an increased risk of hearing loss by 26%. Um, some of the big ones are diuretics. So people that have uh, high blood pressure, kidney disease, um, like the myosin group, you know, erythromycin, vancomycin, that whole myosin group um, can attribute to hearing loss. Um, hydrocodone, um, you know, um, oxycotton, you know, um, Rush Limbaugh is the famous one for that because he, you know, got addicted to the oxycotton. And that caused his hearing loss. Then he had to get a cochlear implant. So, you know, and, and he was very honest at, you know, toward the end about what, you know, what caused that. Um, chemotherapy drugs. So if anyone has gone through chemotherapy, chemotherapy wreaks havoc, not only on your body, but on your hearing as well. Um, you know, the little blue pill, little blue pill uh, can attribute to hearing loss. So there are, you know, many different uh, you know, medications, whether they're over the counter prescribed, um, that can attribute to hearing loss. So the best thing to do is, is, you know, get with your doctor and the pharmacist to find out what the side effects are. If there are other medications, maybe where certain, um, certain side effects are less with one versus another. And it's just having that open dialogue, you know, with your, with your providers to really understand, are there, you know, ramifications for the medications I'm taking? And sometimes, there's just, you know, there, there's no other choice but to take the medication, just understanding um, that it can attribute to hearing loss, and, and it's something you need to monitor. Thank you, Taylor. For a free hearing screening, contact Concept by Iowa Hearing at 877-955-4020. I'll tell you how to remember that. 877-955 and the greatest tractor John Deere ever built. 4020 and tell them Ken Root sent you. Chad Dolan is my guest. He is a fisheries management biologist with the Department of Natural Resources in Iowa. He's based in southeast Iowa at Lake Darling. Chad, we've had a very dry period uh, through last year, even though the Mississippi ran very strong during it from all the snowmelt that came down. Uh, but I recall only a few days 
looking at the Mesonet, that there was more than a one on how many inches of rainfall fell. Most of it was point so-and-so through the year. Mm -hmm. So we were dry in these central rivers uh, going into last fall, and people felt like there might even be fish kills in them. Here in uh, early February, where do we stand? I would say we're in a better situation uh, than we were just a few months ago. Um, you know, we have entered a period where we got a little bit of rainfall, a fair amount of snow for that matter, especially down here uh, where I'm I'm located here in, in the far southeast. We did get abundant snowfall, um, and that's certainly that certainly helped things. But those rivers, you know, with the, the drought conditions we saw over the summer, were certainly getting low. Um, the Des Moines River is one that really sticks out in my mind uh, where it, it pooled up into very shallow water. Some of those pools uh, heated up tremendously, you know, from sunlight penetration, and that was negatively affecting uh, some fish species, uh, namely uh, shovel-nose sturgeon, uh, which run up that uh, particular river. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty significant spawning area you know, in the springtime. Um, but that's a that's an example of a fish species that just doesn't tolerate those uh, really high thermal conditions. Uh, essentially, they reach a point where uh, it becomes very difficult and stressful, and they may actually, um, you know, perish as a result of, of what's happening there. So, and then, of course, when you pool up water, it always, uh, it's always a concern as, you know, that's, it's, those pools are going to have a limited amount of of oxygen. Um, obviously, we're getting inputs from the atmosphere, um, and then also plant life is, is giving off oxygen as a byproduct. So you've got all those things working in concert, but you want them to be in a, a perfect balance, so to speak, so that we don't reach a point where all the oxygen is used up by the organisms that need it within a particular pool in a river you know and so that's where people's concern comes from uh, is the high temperatures and the potential lack of oxygen in some cases um, what are the long-term impacts well you know these things uh, in all reality have occurred for eons for that matter you know throughout these river systems however they have been severely impacted by by human activity so the question is always did we push them too far over the edge in a direction that we don't want them to go. Um, what we have seen, as I mentioned, is you know some some significant uh, fish kills for some species, but also the resiliency of fish communities to bounce back. Um, of course, fish have the ability to move, and so when conditions start to become dire in an interior river, where do they go? Um, a lot of those will run downstream uh, to a bigger water body, you know, in, in the instance of the Des Moines, probably headed towards Mississippi River, you know, um, where they can find adequate refuge and more water. And so a lot of them will do that. Do all of them make it? No, they definitely don't. Some get trapped and those unfortunately uh, may perish, but that is kind of the natural way of things, natural selection, so to speak. And those that do survive and do make it to a bigger water body eventually repopulate a particular river or stream when water conditions 
improve um, and of course you know those fish will reproduce and, and kind of fill that uh, niche and fill that community once again so th those things are definitely happening happening and as far as like interior uh, lake impounds impoundments yes we do we do see drops in water levels as a result of those drought conditions that that we've observed um, but typically in a lake you have a pretty high volume so you know even if you lose uh, feet of water you've still got a significant amount of volume still remaining and those fish uh, typically can find uh, refuge until rainy conditions return and kind of rejuvenate or refill that system once again. And so that's where we're at now. Have we refilled to where we were? Um, probably not, you know, um, but what we have seen is that, you know, we've getting, we're getting snow uh, melt fast enough that it is more than our ground can really absorb. You know, and so where does that water go? Then it runs off into, you know, our rivers, our lakes, and our streams and helps uh, replenish those. So it's not all being taken up by the ground itself. And, of course, some of that water that does go on into the ground will eventually move through groundwater sources and make its way to some of our lakes and ponds as, as well. So um, what I would say is, yeah, we're definitely in a better situation Um you know, a lot of these fish communities are very resilient. We'll, we'll need a little bit more water. Um, you know, the patterns suggest that, you know, we may probably get some more snowfall for all we know, but we'll definitely probably get some rainfall. Um, and that's going to continue to improve the conditions, you know, in our water bodies and then really support uh, life. And, and it'll just kind of keep on ticking and doing its thing. And so, Obviously, we're monitoring those sort of situations, uh, you know, pretty consistently and, and uh, take what actions that we can. But ultimately, these things do happen and they have happened throughout time. But typically, we bounce back. One last thing, and it is about the ice fishermen mm -hmm. uh, who have had a short season and are kind of frustrated by that up in the northeast part of the state where I live. That's... Yeah. Uh, they haven't had time to get out on the ice, but now that they're there, they're finding that there's about 15 to 1 on bluegills that they have to throw back because they're too little. And uh, and then they cut up the big fish, and they find little bluegills in them. And I said, you know, that sounds to me like is good news. You've just right. been yeah. telling me that your your fishery is the best it's been in 10 years. So how would you take it that there are lots of little fish in that river? Right. I mean, typically that would be a pretty good sign that, you know, the last spawn was, was very successful, um, that, you know, that, that there's a lot of new young to replace the old. And so what I would gather from that is that the future looks bright, you know. Um, that's what we want to see. Will all those fish be recruited into the adult population? I think there's probably a long ways to go, you know, a lot of smaller fish. Uh, will be preyed upon, um, but that in turn goes to growing bigger fish, you know, and so um, a lot of that stuff, you know, is just a, it's a snapshot in, in time. Um, it can be reflective of current environmental conditions, but Mother Nature has a way of balancing itself out. But everything that you've kind of described, I mean, to me is, is a positive thing. We want to see 
reproduction. Next thing we want to see is the recruitment of those fish into the adult population. Um, and at certain times, you know, if those uh, fish populations are a little higher than than uh, the norm or so to speak, um, removing some of those fish via harvest isn't the worst thing in the world. Although most of your population control is going to happen internally with our larger fish predators like largemouth bass. Chad, I love the breadth of your knowledge and the conversational and logical way you put it, even though you're a very educated man and uh, you serve the community very well. So uh, thanks to you and uh, to DNR for what you do in the state. And uh, we appreciate you, and I hope that you have a good year in uh, 2024. Well, thank you, Ken. I really appreciate it, and it's been a pleasure being on your show. Thanks for listening to People in the Know. I'm on the hunt for guests to interview. If you have suggestions, contact me at this email address, kenroot at gmail.com, K-E-N-R-O-O-T at gmail.com. Have a great week. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Come on, brothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about